kind of want to after watching that video. <laughs> we are turning to the Gospel of Mark, and we've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark together as a congregation, and together we find ourselves in Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7 in your Bibles. We'll pick up our reading here in a moment, in Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. I think most of us know that it's possible to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. If I'm doing the right thing for the wrong reason, we could also say it's really not that we're doing, it, doing anything right at all. But it is possible to do the right thing, you would imagine, for the wrong reasons or for the wrong motivations. Now I bring that up because let me remind you where we are in the Gospel of Mark. I think it's good for us to review. We've just finished the feeding of what we say is the 5,000. And we know that's just the men that were counted. So there are a lot more than 5,000 people there. There are women and children also in this gathering. And Jesus Christ, at this point in Mark's gospel, is at the height of his earthly popularity. There is never going to be a time when Jesus is alive on earth in his first coming that he will be any more popular than he is right now as we come to chapter 7 of Mark's gospel. Everybody wants to come to see Jesus. And so Jesus is gathering these massive crowds around him. But the crowds are coming, you could say, to the right person, but many are coming for the wrong reasons. Notice how the previous chapter, chapter 6, ended in verse 54. And then when they were come out of the ship, straightway they knew him, and ran through the whole region round about, and began to carry about in beds, and those who were sick, when they heard who he was. And whithersoever he entered into villages or cities, this is Jesus talking, Jesus entering into villages or cities or country, they laid the sick in the streets. You can imagine that. And they besought him that they might touch, if it were, the border of his garments. Can you imagine the crowds flocking to Jesus? Sick folk being laid in the streets as he passes by. Others who are able to move, literally pushing through the crowds just to touch the corner of his garments. And as many as touched him were being made whole. And so as people are getting healed... The news spreads, and it's no longer just by addition. It is just by multiplication times tens and twenties and hundreds and thousands. And they were coming to Jesus because they wanted something. But specifically, we know what they want. They want physical relief from their physical illnesses. They want Jesus Christ because they could get something physically on this side of eternity from Jesus Christ. They didn't come to Jesus yet to worship him as Lord. They didn't fall in front of him and say, I'm a wicked sinner, please forgive me. They are coming because they wanted something. They come to the right person, but they're coming for the wrong reasons. That's the crowds. That's how the crowds are now being told to us. That's why they are flocking to Jesus. But what about the religious leaders of that day? What about the Pharisees and the scribes? Because they are also coming to Jesus. But they are also coming to Jesus, who is the right person, for the wrong reasons. And that's what we'll consider as we come to chapter 7 of Mark's Gospel, picking up our reading in verse 1. Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain scribes, which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled hands, that is to say, with unwashed hands, they found fault. 
For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the market, except they wash their hands, they eat not. And many other things there be, which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots and brazen vessels and tables. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands? And he answered and said unto them, Well, hath Elias prophesied of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other such things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, if a man say to his father or mother, It is korban, that is to say, a gift. By whatever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect, through your tradition, which you have delivered. And many such things do ye. I mark this as a contrast here in the Gospel of Mark, and I want you to note that with me. We're reading from chapter 7. We've just journeyed all the way through chapter 6. In chapter 6, the popularity of Jesus, as we've already noted by way of introduction, is an all-time high. He has just fed the 5,000, and he has healed, who knows, but countless numbers. Certainly God does, but it doesn't record the number of people that he heals. He has walked on water. He has taught amazing crowds of people. In chapter 6, his popularity is at an all-time high amongst the people. But by contrast, in chapter 7, while the crowds are gleefully coming to Jesus, the religious leaders despise Jesus and come for a very different reason. The religious leaders were coming to basically check Jesus out. They knew everybody was talking about Jesus. Jesus could fill, at this moment, seemingly any arena And they're not too sure about his popularity. It's kind of threatening their own positions, and so they don't like this. And these religious leaders are not coming to Jesus to ask questions, though they ask a lot of questions, not the kind of questions they're not asking them so that they may learn, you understand. They are religious leaders, they are evaluating him, and they are ultimately asking questions to trick him, to catch him, to make him look to be a fool. It's a difficult task, by the way, to make God out to be a fool. You will fail in that, but it's certainly what they are trying to do. And they are convinced that what he is teaching is not traditional. It is different, and different scares them. And whatever is traditional they think is right, and whatever is new is immediately wrong. And Jesus thus had to take the religious leaders of of that day aside, away from the crowds for a moment, and rebuke them to share with them the why and how to worship. Because they are, in one sense, worshiping the right God, and even coming to the right God, but they're doing it all the wrong way. And and even if you're doing the right thing the wrong way, you could still say it's the wrong thing to do. You're not going to get what you hoped to get from that. And it's possible, Jesus says, to worship the right God the wrong way. Mark 7 verse 1 reads, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, and you need to understand these two groups before you understand this text. The word Pharisees means separated ones. You understand, of course, that the Jews of that time are separating themselves from non-Jews. There's definitely a line of distinction there. 
But the Pharisees, who were also Jews, separated themselves even further from other Jews. They were known as being very strict. And the scribes that are described here are somewhat of a subgroup of the Pharisees. These were the scholars or the teachers of that day. They specifically were the teachers of the law. And sometimes they referred to as lawyers. They are looking at the law of the Bible, the Old Testament, and they are going to elaborate on that. And a delegation, you'll find, of, of the Pharisees and the scribes are, are sent from Jerusalem, kind of their hub city where everybody meets together. And they are sent... By the delegation there, there, this smaller delegate is sent to investigate Jesus. What is he doing? What is he saying? How are the people responding to him? And they seek now to catch Jesus saying or doing something wrong that they may use it against them. They're almost like little spies in the corner waiting for the Jesus to slip up. And even the slightest of slip up they're going to use to try to hook him away and make him be less and, and in the people's eyes. And so he's saying, verse 2, they saw some of his disciples. This, isn't even, they're not even, this is not even Jesus doing this at the time. It's just the disciples. They ate with hands that were defiled, that is, that were unwashed. Now this, to you and I, may seem like a trivial matter. And no, we're not talking about good hygiene here. You should wash your hands, all right? That's not what we're talking about here. But this, to the, to the Pharisees and the scribes, as we'll see in a moment, is a very big deal. Their unwashing hands, again, is not for personal hygiene. To them, washing hands was devotion to God. It was equal to. In fact, in verse 3 and 4, we record a parenthetical explanation of what is at stake in the minds of these religious leaders, this delegate. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands often, eat not holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, like if they go and they buy goods and they trade, they don't go back and do anything else except they wash and they eat not until they wash. And many other things they do, not just with hands, but they also wash cups like this and pots and brazen vessels and tables. Now by the time Jesus and the Pharisees made this uh, made this kind of conversation together, this practice of lots of washing has become common practice. It has become the custom to not eat without a rigorous process of ritual hand washing. But here we begin to see a crack in their foundations. Jesus, or rather Mark, as he records this, says they are following something. This is a tradition, but notice where it comes from. It's a tradition of the elders. And so Jesus is going to use this and he's going to teach them. You need to learn to worship the right God the right way. The text before us tells us of the Jewish religious leaders, the elites of that day. They know the scripture. They know the Jewish traditions better than most. But Jesus is going to say, number one, Jesus is going to reject human tradition in worship. The leaders at this time were very, very, very focused on the how-tos of worship. They were so into not violating the Bible that what they've done is they've added fences around the text of Scripture. This was typical at that time. Pious Jews put a fence around the Old Testament. What was that fence? Notice in verse 3. Holding fast the tradition of the elders. 
They would be revered of a generation ago. They would sit down and notice exactly the references that are being used here. In verse 5, it says this is the tradition of the elders. This is the fence around the scripture. They, Jesus and Mark call it the tradition of the elders. And Jesus uses the same expression in verse 8. He calls it the tradition of men. In verse 13, he refers to it as your tradition. And all of these traditions are basically man-made, is the point. They are a fence meant to go around the Bible. And, and their thinking was that the, the Jews would be so careful not to contaminate the text of Scripture that they'd say, okay, if the Bible says this, we don't want to do that, so we'll also not do this, and then we'll not do that, and pretty soon the fence is so big and so tall you can't see the actual truth of Scripture anymore. This is what they've begun to do. And we need to think about this very carefully. Question, were, were the washings described in verses 3 and 4 part of the Bible? And the answer is specifically no, not, not how they are doing this. This is the tradition of men. Jesus calls it the tradition of men. So how did that come to be? How in the world did they equate something that's really not necessarily in the Bible, but they've now equated it as part of the Bible? And just a little bit of history for you to help you understand. Approximately 200 years after the birth of Jesus Christ, we have written down for the first time what is called the Mishnah. Anybody ever heard of the Mishnah before? The Mishnah? This is allegedly the oral law. It's a second Torah. Allegedly, when God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai to give him the law, God actually gave to Moses two things, according to Jewish tradition. He gave him the written revelation. The written revelation is what we have in the Old Testament, in the Bible, specifically the words written by Moses. And secondly, according to Jewish tradition, he was also given oral tradition. In other words, he told Moses a bunch of other stuff that never was written down, but was to be passed down two generations by word. And that oral tradition is what is included in the Mishnah. The Mishnah literally means repetition. In other words, over the years, they would repeat the oral tradition of Moses, like playing the game of telephone. And according to the religious leaders of that day, you had to do two things if you were going to obey God. You had to obey the written law, yes, but you also had to obey the oral law as it had been passed down from your fathers. But how do you follow the oral law? Like, how do you know what you're supposed to do? Well, the rabbis thought they needed to tell people how to apply the oral law, so they came up with something called the Gemara. Have you ever heard of the Gemara? So the Gemara is a compilation of all the rabbis' comments on the Mishnah. So you don't just have the Bible anymore. You have the written word of God. You have the, added to that the oral law, the Mishnah. And then you have added to that the rabbis' comments on the Mishnah in the Gemara. And all of this is now put together in one book called the Talmud. Anybody ever heard of the Talmud? Okay, many more have heard of the Talmud. And the Talmud is the Mishnah and the Gemara that have been put together in one book. And this one book now, finally being written down, would have been best described as the tradition of the elders. Now, why is this history important? You can't miss this. These man-made traditions are taken so seriously that finally, after the time of Jesus, the Jews write them down that they may follow them to this day. They have to. These are fences put around the Scripture. And here's the question of the hour. 
Did Jesus and his disciples follow these oral traditions? And the answer, even from the religious leaders, as they observed, is no. They did not, very obviously, very evidently did not. Jesus did not follow human tradition. And that's the Pharisees, that's what the Pharisees are asking him when they say in verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why not thy disciples according to the tradition of elders? Why are they not doing this? Now understand something, this is not an informational why. Right? I want to know, teach us. That's not what they're doing here. This is, this is a why of debate. That's what they're trying to do. Let's, we're going to debate this and we're going to win because our tradition of humans is, is much more significant than what you are doing here. But Jesus Christ is Lord. And you will not tell Jesus what to do. You can sit around and nobly add to the Bible something you think is good. But it doesn't make it Bible. And so Jesus, when he gathers them together, he says, listen, I reject human tradition in worship. Now, carry that out to 2023. Are there things we can add to worship that we think are worship that aren't in the Bible at times? And what would Jesus' response be to that? It would be the same. I reject human tradition in worship. But secondly, Jesus rejected idolatry in worship. What's the big deal? Isn't it okay to just set up fences? Weren't the Pharisees just trying to protect something from getting trampled with? Pick up in verse 6. It says, He, Jesus, answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah, or Isaiah, prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with your lips, but their heart is far from me. Now this is Jesus employing sarcasm of sorts. He really is. Sometimes we say we shouldn't use sarcasm, and most of our sarcasm is ungodly, but Jesus is being a bit sarcastic in verse 6. Jesus is saying, Isaiah sure spoke well of you guys, you bunch of hypocrites. The NIV translates it this way, Isaiah was right when he prophesied that you are a bunch of hypocrites. It's actually a pretty fair paraphrase. Why does Jesus call them hypocrites? A hypocrite is a pretender. What's the heart of hypocrisy? Well, a hypocrite says something with their lips, but it's just a role. They're playing a part. It's not really in their hearts. And you see in verse 6, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They, they play a role, but in their heart it's pretend. And this means their worship was not true worship. Now what's going on? Now what I'm going to mention next will probably be the hardest thing for me to finally understand in this text, but it's something that when I understood this, it really unlocked what they meant. Why does Jesus call them hypocrites? And initially, I was going to say, well, it's probably because they were not sincere, right? They, they, were just, they just weren't sincere. Let me ask you, were they sincere in their worship? Very much so. They were absolutely committed to what they believed. They were doing exactly what they believed, so much so that they wanted everybody else to do what they believed. Were they sincere in what they were doing? Absolutely. Their problem was not a lack of sincerity. But initially in a reading of the text, I thought, well, maybe they just kind of came to church, you know, and sang the songs, but they didn't really mean it in their hearts. And I'm not saying that there isn't a place for preaching against that, but that's not what this text is saying. Were they worshiping in a way that they believed, that they truly believed? 
Yeah, they absolutely believed what they were doing. And when I first came to this account, I thought, maybe this account is telling us you shouldn't come to a worship service and just sit there and mouth the words if your heart is not in it. And I think that's a legitimate concern, but I don't think that's what God was saying, Jesus was saying to the Pharisees. The issue here is not a lack of sincerity. The issue here is not that they engaged in half-hearted, unemotional worship. What's the real issue? The issue is idolatry. They were worshiping something more than they were worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. And what was their idolatry? What was the thing that they put before the gospel of Jesus Christ? Tradition. Human fences. That's all through the passage. Why were they here to visit Jesus in the first place? They were here to listen to him teach? No. They were here to trap him. They wanted to see. They have so elevated human fences, traditions above the gospel, they can't see the gospel. They're now worshiping the fences. And you can hear this group talking to other Jews. Hey, guys, if you bump into the Gentiles in the marketplace, you need to make sure that you ceremonially cleanse yourself. You've got to wash your pots and pans. If you bump into a Gentile in the marketplace and you buy eggs from a Gentile, you need to wash that bowl before you break those eggs. To which the Jews would respond, well, excuse me, I'm not seeing that in the Bible. To which the Pharisees would say, well, it should be, basically. (laughs) And they claim this divine authority through human tradition. Verse 8, for laying aside the commandments of God... You hold the traditions of men. Do you see the problem here? They were following their own human traditions and they were in so doing actively neglecting God's word that they so through their traditions thought they were trying to protect. We see this again in verse 9 as Jesus employs it a bit more sarcasm to make it sink in. He says in verse 9, and he said unto them, full well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own traditions. You you are worshiping the traditions. They were so concerned with their conservative Jewish traditions that they have built around God's word such a high fence, such a high wall, that you can't see God's word anymore. This is their idolatry. Verse 13, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which you have delivered unto many such things you do. Like, you're talking about washing, but... We could talk about a lot of other things, is what he's saying. And that's why Jesus condemned them. They were hypocrites. They were hypocrites because they were saying, we revere the word of God. That's why we're putting up these fences. But in reality, these fences were hiding the word of God. It is possible to worship the right God the wrong way. Now notice how Jesus Christ gives to us an example to help us understand this. It's kind of a hard illustration, because it's not something we really relate to. But as we get into this illustration, Christ uses, he begins it in verse 10, he runs it down to verse 12, and no, he could use many illustrations. After all, he says in verse things, and many such things you do, but he's going to use a specific illustration, beginning in verse 10, going down to verse 12, 
that, that really nails home his point that maybe at first reading, kind of hard for us as 2023 Americans to kind of relate to. And I want to help you understand what he's saying. And what he's saying really is this as a heading. Jesus rejected, it should say number three, not number two, but Jesus rejected false exposition in worship. And exposition, I mean the reading of God's word and applying it to the life of man. And let, let's get the, into this illustration that the Lord employs here. Let's, Jesus begins by quoting Deuteronomy 5, verse 16. He says in verse 10, for Moses said, so he's quoting Moses, specifically Deuteronomy 5, verse 16. Honor thy father and mother. And then he's going to quote Moses again, but this time he's quoting from Exodus 20, verse 17, when he says, and whoso curseth father and mother, let him die the death. Now what did God's word teach? Well, very clearly, very explicitly, very strongly for all the kids in here, tells you, honor mom and dad, right? But in verse 11, Jesus now gives an example of how they believed in the tradition of the elders that caused people to not follow God's command. He's going to give an example of one of these oral traditions that has now been passed down that they are using to make void the clear command, honor mom and dad. Here's the example, verse 11. But you say, this is talking to the religious leaders. If a man shall say to his father and mother, it is korban, that is to say a gift, but asoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. Let me see if I can help you a little bit. It's a biblical truth that we should care for our parents. We know that. The New Testament actually amplifies that. Paul tells Timothy that a church should not help an elderly couple that has children because children are responsible to be taking care of their parents. That's Paul's amplification of this honor your father and mother principle of the Old Testament. This is in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And what did these Jews do with this? They would say, yes, the Bible clearly teaches this, honor mom and dad, but the rabbis teach us that you, need, you can dedicate things to God. And the idea of dedication is that you can keep it throughout your old, all of your lifetime, but when you pass, whatever it is that you dedicated to God goes to the temple. That's what the rabbis were teaching. And the commandment to honor your father and mother and your parents prescribe more than respect. Obviously, it requires obedience and your support in adulthood. Adult children were the primary social security program for older parents in that day. But if a parent came to a son with a need, he was permitted, according to oral tradition, to claim korban, as you see the word used in this text. And you don't really use that word all that often, and that's why we're taking some time to explain it. And Mark explains what the word means. Korban means given to God. It was a religious way, you could say, of filing bankruptcy, as I saw one commentator write. You claim the money to your parents that your parents needed was actually given to God, but you had not given to God it yet. You still had the money, understand. But you had promised it to God, so your mom and your dad say, we need some help financially, and you say, I can't right now, just yet, because while I have it, like I absolutely have it, it's God's money, so I can't give it to you. And that's what they're doing. They're basically saying, sorry, we can't do it. And the Pharisees would say that the vow consecrated it. You could not give it to your parents. But later on, you could give it back to the temple because you consecrated it that way. Let me try to make a modern application of what this might look like. Let, let's just say you have a family here, and you're a family, and you have, you're a two-car home. 
and your mom or your dad are hitting some financial problems and they don't have a vehicle and they say to you, honey, could we use one of your cars? And you think, the Bible says, honor mom and dad, they don't have a car, I have two, I'm going to let them use one of my cars. But then you reconsider and you, can, you think, you know, when we, when we needed this car, I prayed and I said, God, if you would just give us this car, we will give it back to you. And you think, well, Mom, I can't do that. I can't give you that car anymore because it's not my car. And when we don't need it anymore, we're going to give it back to the church so a missionary can use it. I mean, I just, I just can't. It's not my car. Let me ask you this. How often has God been blamed for something that he really wasn't part of? Thought about that? How often do we spiritualize something so spiritual. Oh, I've been praying about this. It is God's work. It is God's will. Like, you can't convince me otherwise. You know, a, a sunbeam came out somehow and, and you know, in there in my, in my closet. And it, it is God's will. And someone says, well, yeah, but you're like, you're violating. It's pr- I think it's pretty evident. You're violating the pages of Scripture. You say, no, God told me this. How often is God blamed for something he's not really part of? That's what the Pharisees are doing. They are over-spiritualizing something to the point where God is saying, that is not the intention of dedicating things. That is certainly not what I was communicating with the honor of your father and mother thing. And you've actually made void a clear command by your over-spiritualization of this dedication principle. And the Pharisees were actually teaching something as part of oral tradition with their intent of, you know, surrounding scriptures with a fence to protect the scriptures, they're actually building a fence that contradicts the scriptures. Notice the progression. The Pharisees misinterpret God's clear word. That's the problem. But notice the progression of this text. Verse 8 says they leave the word of God. They're just just leaving it. Verse 9 says they reject the word of God. And then when we get to verse 13, they make void the word of God. Is the picture of canceling a contract. They're saying, well, and remember, these are scribes too, which are often referred to as lawyers. We've read the fine print, and you're okay. That's what they're saying. And the religious leaders have canceled their subscription to the Word of God and selectively practiced what meets whatever over-spiritualization that will keep other people under their thumbs. That's what Jesus is saying. I was doing my study and reading more about the Mishnah. I found out that the Mishnah actually declares that you can't and shouldn't read portions of the Old Testament. Now, how weird is that, I thought. Isn't the Old Testament God's word, and even the Jews believed that? But the more I read in the Mishnah, the more I began to understand their position, at least as they read it. There are sections, they say, of Daniel and Ezra that are not written in Hebrew. We know that. There are sections of Daniel and Ezra that were written originally in Aramaic. And the Mishnah, then, actually declares that if you are reading your Bible and you read the Aramaic sections of Daniel and Ezra, you must wash your hands after you have finished reading those because those are contaminated. Apparently, you are polluted for reading God's Word in Aramaic. 
But the Mishnah does say that if you read the same exact sections of Daniel and Ezra, translated into Hebrew, it's okay, because Hebrew is good. And the same Mishnah says, you are welcome to translate Aramaic into Hebrew, but you can never translate Hebrew into Assyrian. Because the Assyrian language, according to the Mishnah, is ungodly. So if you take the Old Testament and translate it into the Assyrian, you would be wrong. Say, well, what would happen to the Assyrians? Well, according to the Mishnah, they must never have special revelation in their language, ever. Why? Because they have built up such high fences around God's word that there's an entire people group that according to the Mishnah is not allowed to have the Bible in their language. Now understand the logic of their thinking. You get this. They're thinking God's word is very special. Do we agree with that? Absolutely. They're saying, well, God's word is worth protecting at all costs. Do we believe that? Absolutely. And their conclusion then says this. We need to be, build fences around God's word to protect it because it's so special. Now, some of you know where I'm going right now. There are many people in traditional churches who, in a somewhat noble attempt to protect holiness, establish man-made fences that rise so high you can no longer see the truth they're trying to protect. And they have exalted the fence over the word. That's idolatry. It is possible to worship the right God the wrong way. In conclusion, true worship begins in the heart. Worship is not the idea of let's all dress up on church, carry a Bible, and go to church. No, we could do all of those things on Sunday. We could look nice. We could carry a Bible, and, both, and all that is good. But if my heart is not engaged, there is no true worship going on. True worship begins in the heart. Jesus rejected heartless worship. And true worship is rooted, namely, in God's word. It is focused on God, and Jesus rejects any worship that is not focused on his word. We don't come together to focus on what we like. We come together to focus on God's word, his all-sufficient word. We don't have to add fences to God's word. God's word is God's word. And worship that exalts human tradition above God's word is hypocritical because it's idolatry. You're saying, I love the word, and you never go to the word. Friend, have you ever been a part of a church that talks all about the word but never reads the actual word? I've been to those services. I've heard preachers wax eloquent about how special the Bible is without actually waxing eloquent about the actual Bible. They're so engrossed in making sure that everything looks the way it always has, according to American traditions even, that they forget God rejected that kind of worship years ago, and many churches have become the modern-day Pharisees and scribes that Jesus rejected in this text today. Is it possible that sometimes you and I engage in hypocrisy? That I take something in the Bible that is true, and because of my zeal, I put a fence around it, 
and now I demand other people follow my tradition. If that is the case, then this passage would convict me, and I need to come back to that place where I say, Lord, would you please give me a heart that desires to worship you your way according to your word? When Martin Luther stood before the power brokers of the monolithic Roman Catholic Church, he was asked to recant of his criticisms of the church. You need to quit saying what you're saying. His criticisms arose because he did not make the void the word of God. Rather than exercising their authority as man-made traditions, Luther rather boldly said, faith alone, by God's word alone and grace alone. He examined the traditions of man, and he examined them through Scripture, and he saw that they were void. And weighed in the perfect scale of Scripture, the gospel of the Catholic Church, we could say the gospel of the Catholic Church, was weighed and found wanting, according to Luther. And the opinions of man were what Luther was intent on making void. But they were saying, you need to recant. You have preached against what we are doing. You need to recant. We have actually Luther's words recorded for us in the, in the pages of history to know exactly what he said to those men. When they said, you need to recant. You, you need to stop saying our traditions are wrong. Here's what Luther said. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly in contradicting themselves. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is held captive by the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and I will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. In other words, Luther was saying this. It's his story, he gets to write it. Friends, if you want to know about our church and what we believe, just grab a Bible and start reading it. That's what we believe. We haven't sought to add to it. We've certainly tried not to take away from it. We are careful in expounding it word by word, verse by verse. And if you're going to accuse us of being anything, accuse us of being so tied to the Word of God, it's like we won't listen to any other opinion but the Word of God. If you want to accuse us of anything, accuse us of that. That's who we are. That's what God's Word is. And if you read God's Word, you'll come to discover that there's a simple way to come to the Jesus that so many men, I fear, have erected so many fences around that some feel like you have to climb over a dozen just to get to gospel truth. Friend, Jesus has made it really simple. You ready for it? I am the way. I am the door. I, I am the bread of life. I am the water that replenishes. Just come to Jesus, friend. I'm not asking you to scale a wall of tradition. Luther at one point thought he had to climb up steps in, in, in Germany there on his knees, thinking that every time he prayed, somehow he'd be getting closer to God on each step. And he got to the top of those steps, and he realized he was farther away from God than he was when he started the journey. Why? Because there's only one way to heaven. And his name is Jesus. And he's saying to these men... You know why you're hypocrites? That's a strong word, by the way, friend. 
Because all of this crowd in chapter 6, they're coming to me and you keep putting up guardrails. And you keep putting up fences and, and you're constantly keeping them under your thumbs in an effort to make sure you look good, but as you do so, you are damning souls to eternity. And all I've sought to do from God's word this morning is to blow up those fences so that you can come straight to Jesus right now. I'm not going to ask you if you're not not saved today. I'm not going to ask you to pray a specific prayer after me. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm not asking you to, to make sure that you say a couple prayers correctly and then maybe even burn some incense up here afterwards. I'm not asking any of that. What I'm saying is, if you want to be saved, here's what you need to do. Admit that you're a sinner, that Jesus saves you from your sins, that Jesus lives again, ever living, to make intercession for you, and you just call out to him. You say, I've never prayed before. What is that? Just talk to God. You say, but I can't talk to God. He's all the way over there. I've just preached and told you the walls have been removed. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, do you know what happened to that veil that was between the Holy of Holies and man? Do you know what happened to that veil? It was ripped in two. Why? To prove this point he was trying to make to the Pharisees. Can you imagine the scrambling of the religious leaders when they saw that curtain being ripped? (gasps) Our wall! (laughs) Jesus is saying, absolutely, that's right. It's gone. Come to me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truths of Scripture as we've seen testified from the waters of baptism and now explained to these religious leaders in Mark chapter 7. Lord, there are so many who have become so engrossed with the traditions of men that they have become, that they have sadly rather worshipped traditions more than God. Lord, it is our prayer, our, our earnest desire that you would win souls to yourself because you are the only way. If there are any in this room who have never accepted Christ as their Savior, Lord, may today be the day of their salvation. With every head bowed and every eye closed, the instruments are going to begin to play. Is your all on the altar is the song's title? Perhaps you're here today, you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. We'd certainly love to show you from God's Word what it means to be a child of God. If you are perhaps willing to admit, you know, there are some traditions I've held so strongly, I've begun to worship those over God's Word. Would you confess that as well and tear down those walls and come back to Jesus? He's always ready and able to forgive.